0: what does it mean to experience a deadly epidemic in recent months people have struggled with this question but it's not a new question welcome to experiencing epidemics podcast we are Gáspár Jakowatz,
1: jorge diaz ceballos
2: and ian hathaway And we want to explore this question as historians by delving into personal narratives drawn from the long history of people's encounters
0: with epidemics. We do so thanks to the contributions of scholars based at the European University Institute and beyond. This project is brought to you as part of the
2: COVID-19 Knowledge Hub of the European University Institute. Enjoy the show.
0: Our vessel dropped anchor at the harbour of the infirmaries, and we saluted them with 11 cannon shots. They saluted us back from the rampart and the boulevard located on the bridge with a 300-shot salvo and, after that, the captain came on behalf of the lieutenant admiral to hear more about my health and to congratulate me on my happy arrival. He let me know about all the joy that everyone felt for me and told me that they were waiting for me for a long time. I saw, however, that to talk to me he came near the vessel but never boarded. This is how he explained his actions. When there is in France an evil disease, we remain a long time without communication with those from the outside. And if we want to have a conversation, we need to do it without touching each other. Indeed, when I was in France, the town of Marseille was, by divine permission, infected by a cruel plague, from which died 80,000 souls.
3: The disease
0: also spread in Provence, and Toulon, which is in this province, was afraid of the spread of the disease, and allowed strangers in only after 20, 30, or sometimes even 40 days. The French call this period of isolation the Lazaret, or the quarantine. Hello everyone,
2: and welcome to the seventh episode of Experiencing Epidemics podcast. This will be the last episode of our series before the winter break, And don't worry, we will be back in mid-January with more episodes. But considering this, today's episode will be a bit special and will run a little bit longer than usual. We will be joined by three experts on the history of the Ottoman Empire, a vast social and political organization that spanned from the Balkans to the Red Sea and lasted over 700 years. Within this mind-boggling expanse, we will be focusing on the 16th to 18th century, roughly, and on the Mediterranean region. The excerpt we just heard comes from the writing of an early 18th century Ottoman traveler who crossed the Mediterranean. His name was Yirmisikiz Mehmed Efendi. We asked Professor Giancarlo Casale of the EY, who is an expert on Ottoman Mediterranean history, for some details about Mehmed Effendi and his travels. Here is what he had to say.
4: So Yermi Sikhi's Mehmed Effendi's name actually means 28 Mehmed Effendi, and that's because he was originally uh, a Janissary, and he was in the 28th Battalion of the Janissary Corps. But he had a very interesting and uh, varied career. He went on to become uh, the director of the Ottoman Mint, and then to become kind of the uh, head accountant of the Ottoman Empire, the Defter Dar. And then in uh, 1720, he was asked to lead this uh, really unprecedented year-long um, embassy to Paris. And uh, most of what we know about him is actually based on this long book-length account that he wrote about his experiences in France after he returned.
2: So what happened to Mehmed Effendi during his uh, travels
4: as an ambassador to France? Well, I think probably the most important thing that happened to him was that he couldn't arrive in France, at least not as easily as he was expecting to, because when he arrived um, in Provence, there was um, a plague outbreak. It was very severe. And in fact, the entire region was um, under quarantine. So he was told that he was not allowed to disembark uh, until he had done a 40-day quarantine. They didn't have facilities for somebody like him to do something like that. And he ended up having to stay on his ship. And eventually they took him to another place on the coast where there was an abandoned church on an island off of the coast of France. And they ended up having him stay there with his entire entourage for 40 days. He could see across onto the mainland, uh, but he couldn't reach it. And it was uh, an extremely unexpected and strange experience for him.
2: And why was this such an
4: unusual experience for Mehmed Efendi? The fact is that the quarantine as an institution had a very long history in Christian Europe, going all the way back to the Middle Ages. But in the Ottoman Empire, it was not practiced. And there's a very old debate about why that might have been. Uh, Part of the debate assumes that quarantines actually work, which is a separate question that uh, possibly um, Nuket Hanum will address later on in in the um, episode. But even if you assume that they do work, um, there's an assumption that people have uh, presented that possibly it was because of something called Islamic fatalism. In other words, the idea that um, because people in the Ottoman Empire Muslims in the Ottoman Empire were uh, so uh, trusting in God's will to decide the fate of the world that they didn't feel it was their place to try to protect themselves against uh, the plague by uh, doing something like a quarantine, I think the experience of the last year really helps us to see things in a different light, because rather than fatalism, I think the the key to understand why there weren't quarantines in the Ottoman Empire uh, has much more to do with the emphasis people placed on openness. It was extremely important for the Sultan uh, when presenting himself as a good ruler to be able to show that he was able to maintain openness, that for example, a merchant coming from somewhere else would be able to easily and safely cross the borders of the empire. And so to institute something like a quarantine, where you're essentially saying anyone who comes to uh, the borders of the empire will be imprisoned, it, it it just seemed tyrannical to people. And so even if it might have helped to keep them protected, it wasn't a step that anybody thought was appropriate.
2: Jumping off of Professor Kazale's reflections, let us now take a closer look at Ottoman experiences of epidemics, not as they encountered them abroad while traveling, but at home in the streets of Istanbul. Despite not practicing European style quarantine for much of the early modern period, Ottoman officials and subjects had a long history of reflecting on, trying to understand, resisting, and in general, experiencing plague and other diseases. Some of these experiences have left incredible traces such as those found in the diaries of the 17th century dervish Sayyid Hassan nur
0: Just at that moment I saw Ayyusuf ibn Selim entering unexpectedly through the farm's gate on the black horse of Nalbend Ahmed Bey. I suddenly felt worried. We asked what it was and read his note. I poor soul recognized my son's handwriting and felt a bit less worried. However, it was saying that that Gulbevi Hatun was on her deathbed. Thus. We should do our best to reach her in sickness or death. After having recovered from the shock, Yusuf, Ate, and I prepared for the road. We finally arrived in Jambazie. Imam Efendi was facing the street. I greeted him and saw that they were bathing a deceased person. I would later learn that his son, Sayyid Mehmed, had been buried within the garden of the house. Towards the mid-afternoon, I arrived at home and find Gulbevi Hatun in the throes of death. She was in such a pain that I cannot describe. Her eyes were wide open, but no words escaped her. In the end, she passed away in two hours reeling in pain. Let it be known that her sickbed was adjacent to the big room's window, while her deathbed was not the side of the banister. That evening after supper, we conversed with Kayen Chalebi, and ate Gulbevi Hatton's halva. Selim kadan cooked. It tasted incomparably delicious. Selim Rehan Rehan Badger and Lutfi Usta waited on the deceased's side. I was tired from the road and wanted to rest in the small room, however sleep eluded me. I went up to her side and waited there either contemplating or weeping until the morning prayers call. After the prayers call, I went to Hazredi Aziz in the street where the sacred cell is and listened to his consolations. Later. With several friends, we went to Jera Yusuf Celebi because his brother-in-law, Mahmoud Chelebi's son, had passed away and people had gathered in Mahmoud Celebi's house. We immediately rushed there, greeted them, expressed our condolences to Yusuf Celebi. With the excuse that we also have a deceased person at home, we left. I arrived at home with Zakir Basher, rested, but then went to and came back from Yildizade, waiting for the moment to bathe the deceased. Later, when I, the poor, was near the storage room, some people attempted to carry my wife down for the bathing. We felt the deepest sorrow and wept so much that I cannot express it. When I was later contemplating and crying on the big stone outside the small gate, one of the companions called me. I went then and met my son. My middle son Mustafa was gazing at the people from the stairs near the staple. After the prayer, I saw him crying.
2: The incredible excerpt we just listened to was generously translated and provided to us by Tunahan Durmas. Tunahan is a first-year researcher at the European University Institute, and his work focuses on the cultural aspects of disease in the early modern Ottoman Empire and in Europe. Thank you so much to Tunahan for sharing this source and his research with us. When we spoke, I asked him to give us a bit more information about Hasan efendi, and this is what he answered.
5: Seyyid Hasan Nuri efendi, or shortly Hasan efendi, was an Istanbulite dervish affiliated with the Sumbulia branch of the Kalveti order, which is an Islamic Sufi path, a tariqa. He was born in the year 1620 as the son of the most prominent name of the Sumbulia back then. The contemporary biographical dictionaries tell us that Hasan Efendi was also a praised calligrapher and a poet, and like his father, he would also rise to a prominent position in the branch later, being the sheikh of an important convent in Balat neighborhood of Istanbul. However, his significance as a historical subject for us today stems from none of these, but from the fact that he kept the first-known diary in the Ottoman literature between the years 1661 and 65. For almost four complete years, he recorded daily notes of a substantially quotidian nature about, for example, who he met, where he went, and to no less a degree than these, what he ate in a day. Furthermore, he also frequently recorded some news of birth, marriage, and death from his various social circles. Among these, the death news is of particular abundance and importance because Hassan Efendi's diary starts in a sweltering day of August in the year 1661, while a plague epidemic was ravaging Istanbul. We don't know much about this specific outbreak from the other contemporary sources, but the diary provides us with some striking information about it. Having lost many from his family, his casualties in the disaster, including his wife, two sons, a niece, and many friends and acquaintances. Hasan Efendi recorded all of these instances in his diary and narrated the individual cases of being plagued the chicken in great detail, starting from the moment when a close person got infected with the pestilence to the time they became seriously ill. Most of the time, he eventually had to write the unfortunate end and the following funeral arrangements, like in the case of his wife, Gülbe Vihat.
2: Thank you, Tunahan. When listening to these sources, I was struck by the fact that, both now and then, the passing of loved ones taken by a disease entailed many rituals. Now, I can only imagine that these rites helped those who remained cope with the grief uh, of the loss and helped them also reaffirm that life and society go on. But... Could you tell us something more about the specific rites and practices related to death that Hassan described during the plague years?
5: Sure. In my opinion, it would be more accurate to investigate those under two separate headings, one being the ante mortem rituals and the other being the post-mortem rituals and practices. Yet, based on your question, I will mostly focus on the letter after a short review of the ante mortem rituals. If it is especially because of an obvious reason, such as an illness or old age, death was usually foreseen by both the moribund person and the people close to him or her. Thus, the state itself created its own rights and practices. The most apparent one mentioned by Hasan Efendi is a specific type of visit paid to the sick, which is named iade or iadet. If he mentions he paid an iade visit to someone, The death of the person was usually to come in a few days. The other practice pertaining to this period would be will-writing, that is, vasiyet or vasiyetname. For instance, our protagonist, being a very curious man, records the will of a certain Ismahatun in his diary after being present during her will-writing as a witness in front of the judge. As for the post-mortem period, the first act was by all means the funerary arrangements because the dead body should have been buried as soon as possible. Besides, to find a burial place was not extremely easy task in Istanbul at that time. They usually chose to bury the deceased person in the intramural areas. However, since Hasan Efendi's neighborhood was close to the city walls, they alternatively chose extramural locations as well in case they could not find available spots in the first one. When they found an appropriate burial place, usually the order of a coffin and the necessary ablution supplies followed. So before the burial, the deceased body was bu- washed. Without skipping, Hasan Efendi mentions this rite in every funeral he narrates. After the burial, the second phase of the post-mortem rituals came. These were usually uh, in commemorative forms. For example, helva, a traditional dessert made with flour, was served on the first day of the dead. It was called Jan helvasi, helva for the soul. For example, Hasan Efendi praised the taste of the helva made for his wife Gülbevihat. Nevertheless, the food serving for the deceased person was not contained to Helva, as Hassan Efendi mentions other delicacies, such as a, such as çörek, a type of, type of pastry as well. It was also common to recite excerpts from Qur'an or Mevlid-i-Sherif on the 7th and 14th day of the death, and it goes without saying that these recitals were also followed by food.
0: On the side of the bed, my son Mustafa studied the surah of Ma'un with his older brother. I gazed at him, worrying that if something bad should happen to him, I might forget his face. Later, Selim Kadan took him to a teacher. A fire is tearing apart my heart. I cannot express its gravity with words. Later. While conversing with the companions in Yildizadeh's room after the evening, we learned that Bakalemir Ahmed Celebi's son, Sayyid Mehmed, had passed away. The aforementioned Emir came to the house a few times and strolled through the streets lamenting. Afterwards, we stood up for the bathing prayer of Sayyid Mehmed. At that moment, I started having bad premonitions as if my son Mustafa had died and was being bathed with these garments and in front of these people. We took Seyyid Mehmed's deceased body to the cell's gate and then they brought five more deceased people. Some of them were boys and some of them were girls but one of them was a grandee's son. The above-mentioned premonition continued to worry me during the whole funeral. Later my older son arrived. I felt terribly worried. He told me to come back as Mustafa was in bad condition. We rushed back. When I arrived home, I found him lying on the cushion on the side of the stairs. His feet were facing the window. I learned that he became plague-stricken in the house of his older sister. Later, we carried him from there to the cushion near the wall of the small room. On Sunday, I was in Ildizadeh's house. Having heard the prayers call, my friend went to pray. I stayed there. Later, he came and told me that they had prayed for five funerals and also that nazmi Effendi's daughter is on the sickbed i suddenly felt disheartened i went home to assess the situation i found my mustafa at the throes of death my elder son was reciting yashini sharif and my elder sister came and sat by me in the end he passed away it was the 16th day of the month Muharram.
2: Those of us who have been living under more or less intense forms of lockdown over the past months, might marvel at the mobility and social aspects of many of the rituals performed by Hassan Effendi and his family during the devastating plague of 1661-1662. We have also already discussed how Ottoman authorities did not at least not before the 19th century, implement practices of quarantine like those experienced by Ambassador Mehmed Efendi upon his arrival in France. Why was this the case? To dive deeper into this topic, we have with us one of the leading experts on disease, medicine, and public health in the Ottoman Empire, Associate Professor at the University of South Carolina and at Rutgers University Newark, Nuket Warlik. Professor Warlik, Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Now, I am very excited uh, to have you here and to ask you this question that boggles my mind and which I have already pestered Professor Kazale with. Why did the early modern Ottoman Empire not enforce practices of quarantine like European states?
3: So, first of all, let me start by saying that there is a very long and established tradition of thinking about Um, presence of or absence of quarantine establishments in different parts of the Mediterranean world as as a story of success or failure. And that narrative actually in itself is not something that fully develops until the 19th century. Uh, But it is something that is also retroactively back projected to the early modern period, and in a way, still in the 21st century, it is something that defines our perception of the early modern period, early modern Mediterranean history, as if the societies that used, implemented um, quarantine were more successful in fighting outbreaks of plague, as opposed to those societies that didn't. And in that controversy or in that dichotomy, um, um, epidemiological, assumed epidemiological differences or assumed boundaries between West and East, and again, this is what we see in the scholarship, uh, we hear the experiences of these uh, usually smaller port cities, uh, European uh, Uh, poor cities of the Mediterranean. And then, of course, it spreads to to other uh, European cities, but I don't see it as a systematic Europe-based or Europe-wide effort.
2: I see. Uh, So you are essentially telling me that when I ask this question about quarantines, I am making two assumptions. The first is that there is a uniform history of quarantine in Europe, even though most of what we know about it comes from very specific settings. And my second assumption, which I guess is the bigger one, is to think that quarantine actually stops the spread of plague. And is there for a better, if you will, response to it?
3: Absolutely. In fact, I am working on this question for my second book. Uh, And also, it will be important for our listeners to remember that this has been told as a story of contagion, plague in particular here. Um, But plague is not a contagious disease that is transmitted from person to person under normal circumstances. It has a more complex ideology of transmission because it's a rodent's disease. Unless you quarantine rats, you will not be fully successful. So it's more complicated than we think and it's not something that can be reduced only to quarantine. Quarantine may have helped, but it's not something that will stop an outbreak of plague.
2: Right. But in that case, why did the Ottoman Empire eventually start using quarantine in the 19th century?
3: There are a whole set of different um, uh, reasons why the Ottomans implemented quarantine when they did. And that did not only have reasons to stop disease. It had also um, motivations to control populations, migration, knowing the citizens and tracking their movement, right? Let's also remember some of those quarantine stations also served the purpose of collecting information about individuals.
2: Okay, so the fact that the Ottoman Empire started using quarantine when they did should be understood as part of a rather complex set ad, of administrative considerations that don't all have to do with um, with disease control.
3: Exactly, internally, but also externally. I mean, like the political uh, conjunctures of the 19th century, and of course, are extremely different than, you know, say the 16th century. So there is really no historical comparison. We're not talking about the same societies, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, but I wonder what about earlier then, if the 19th century is one important turning point uh, in the history of the state's engagement with disease control, what about uh, the 16th century, say? Um, Could we think of it as another important moment
3: Right, I mean, uh, 16th century, yes, I think you're right in suggesting that it's really a turning point, at least that's what I argued in my book. Uh, This doesn't mean that no effort by uh, the Ottoman state or society was, was was you no know, interventions were, were made before the 16th century, but 16th century is really a time when we see those changes clearly, new ideas, new uh, consciousness about public health and implementation of new regulations. You have that responsibility being associated with the, the powers of the state. And I think that is what is new. And in that sense, yes, we see uh, that the Ottoman Central Administration, especially starting in the 16th century, adopted new regulations for cleanliness in the cities um, trying to make sure that the key components of health are preserved and maintained, and the key components here are um, air water but also the morals the moral values of a society Uh, in terms of uh, trying to maintain a clean air you get rid of bad um, smells Swamps or any any contaminant of the air. Uh, in the Ottoman case, we see a very concerted effort to remove um, dead bodies, plague bodies during times of epidemics outside of the city very quickly, right? Because of the the idea of contagious uh, corpses. Um, also the collection of of garbage from the cities um, drying um, uh, marshlands and all these um, kind of efforts to 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 maintain clean air in addition to it there is also a systematic effort to bring clean water supply to the cities and trying to monitor uh, those that contain the water, but as I also said before, uh, the morals, right? Just trying to maintain a healthy society, not in terms of physical health, but also like mental and emotional health that sometimes we might miss uh, when we focus on only on the physical body, right? So I think they saw it more as a, as a whole.
2: So for the Ottoman 16th century administration, it was important to provide its people with a clean and healthy physical and mental landscape, so to speak. That's uh, fascinating. Um, and in fact, if this idea does not seem so distant from that of those many Europeans who reflected on the connection between morality and disease, as we have seen in, well, several of our previous episodes. Now, there is one thing I would like to ask you about the ultimate experiences of plague, particularly in comparison to the European Despite many similarities and some differences, uh, it seems to be a fact that the Ottoman experience was more persistent through time. I think the fact that the plague of Marseille, 1721, uh, with which we actually opened this podcast, was one of the last major European outbreaks of this disease, but not so in the Ottoman Empire. What do you make of that?
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Totally right uh, that you know the plague of Marseille was one of the last major uh, outbreaks of plague in, in Europe uh, whereas we still have continuous outbreaks of plague occurring in, in the Ottoman Middle East, North Africa and whatnot. So we still have a continuity of disease that blasted way longer right um, the last recorded uh, outbreak of plague that I found in my study uh, in my research is one that happened in the Turkish Syrian border in the year 1947 a very small outbreak 1947 so we're talking about a continuity that lasted way into the middle of 20th century uh, of course not in the scale of, of previous outbreaks but uh, in the in the um, 1800s still we have you um, big outbreaks in in Ottoman cities. So what does this mean Uh, and how should we think about this? So we have disease that is kind of, you know, having a longer history in one region versus a shorter history in a different region. And again, the the way historians have dealt with this is really assuming that uh, quarantine and other public health interventions made in Europe paid off in terms of the elimination of disease, which is again, not something that is supported by our scientific knowledge of the disease. Plague is not a disease that you can eradicate Eradicate um, by means of um, public health affairs, quarantine, isolation practices, and whatnot. Let's take the example of uh, the United States today. We still have plague in this country. I mean, once it's in the local rodent population, you cannot eradicate that disease. So um, public health efforts are, of course, important surveillance of wild rodents and whatnot. And of course, now today we have antibiotics. But today we know that it's not a disease that you can eradicate by human interventions to the environment, right? And we're, we're in the 21st century and we can't manage with our technology. So if we want to kind of you know attribute that success to early modern Europe, we're making a mistake somewhere.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely take your point. We, we really do need to be aware of the broader environmental dynamics behind the spread of plague. At least we want to understand the long, the long uh, term history of this disease. And I guess in terms of history, I would like to ask you one last big question. As a historian who has dedicated their work to the study of plague and diseases past, well, why do you think it matters? Why do you think it matters today to do this kind of research?
3: Excellent question. And especially now that we are in a pandemic, I mean, it's it's a new th- experience for all of us globally, uh, but for the specialists, of course, a new opportunity to think and rethink our historical knowledge. Uh, what I would uh, what I would say is that. ...historical knowledge and historical insights about past epidemics, past pandemics, something that we really need to take into consideration into our thinking of our current day pandemic, current day problem because because there is nothing comparable in our recent memory, in the recent living human memory in the world today to compare this to or learn from any of the past experiences, we need to bring in historical insight. And I think uh, in my own writing, I highlighted two aspects of the historical insights that can help us uh, think about this pandemic in the way that will be informed by historical, historical insights. And one of those is that I argued uh, that pandemics are not short-term cataclysmic phenomena, but they're long-term processes and they should be understood as such. And the other is we really need to adopt a, a broader ge- a geographic uh, vision, thinking of pandemics it should be obvious, but it's still not, I believe, as global and trans-regional phenomena instead of focusing on the local. I mean, yes, the local experience is important and it will inform our thinking, but unless we have this larger vision, we will fail to see the big picture. So I think extending both the chronological and the, um, the geospatial definition of pandemics both today, and in the past is really a key component. At least that's what I've learned from my studies.
2: And thank you so much, Professor Vadlik, for sharing your insight with us. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks to Ian Hathaway and to all our guests who contributed to this rich and thought-provoking episode. My name is Gaspar Jakowatz, and I'll be wrapping up today's podcast with my co-editor Jorge Diaz-Ebaez. Hi, Jorge. How are you? I'm fine, Gaspar. Thank you. Happy to be back. We both had a chance to listen to the episode that Ian prepared for us and I must say I really enjoyed it. I was particularly struck by the vivid detail of Nuri Efendi's diary and the discussion that Ian had with Professor Varlik about historiography and the issue of quarantine in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, what sort of measures do really prevent contagion? It's not always clear, right? And so much depends on the specifics of particular disease effective pest control might have had a more long-lasting impact on the disappearance of the plague in europe rather than measures like quarantine
1: indeed especially so if like professor casale pointed out there were no facilities to properly spend the quarantines when you were away from home so you could end up in a boat or in an abandoned church in an island i think Professor Barlich's last point on the importance of larger visions about pandemics is very very valuable for our own contemporary experience of epidemics. As a society, like ours, with predominant short-term horizons, it is key to have distance and reflect on epidemics as very long and transnational processes to avoid short-term solutions. Don't you think?
0: Absolutely, we we certainly learned over the past year that COVID is not going to simply disappear overnight.
1: Well, I look forward to the upcoming episodes. We are having break over Christmas now, but we'll be back next year with more great podcasts. Next up is Clement Gottbarth on medical metaphors to discuss politics in Renaissance Europe.
0: Yes, that is exciting. Thanks Jorge for the chat, and thanks to all of you who tuned in for the seventh episode of Experiencing Epidemics podcast. If you like what you've heard, please join us again in mid-January. In the meantime, happy holidays, Happy New Year and stay safe!